I'm Adam. This is Tim. This is John. We have um, many people in the audience who have helped organize this in the past. Uh, Katie is here and will raise her hand. Andrea is coming. Tom is coming. Um, this is a sort of large community um, hoping to make intersectional bridges around science of the self. Um, so pretty simply, um, I'm right now uh, in, a, in a neuroscience lab studying the neural mechanisms of meditation and was really hoping that that would involve um, a lot of meditation scholars. It turns out it doesn't involve so many in day-to-day -day practice. Um, and was hoping that if we're going to ask really giant interdisciplinary questions about how our selves work and our souls work and emotion and creativity and empathy and all these questions, which are really partly scientific, possibly not purely, um, that we should create a community that can ask those questions from different directions. So that's what we're hopefully bringing together here. Um, our first event was on sleep and all of its strange mysteries and stages of consciousness. Um, this is going to focus on contemplative technology, contemplative science, um, insight uh, from lots of different scholars. Our speakers are pretty incredible. I'm going to introduce each of them um, as they come up, um, but just 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 quickly, um, if if everybody could raise their hand, um, Andreas is here, and uh, Baruti is uh, here, and Chris Berlin is here, and Jeff Rediger is here, and we have a range from folks who study spontaneous remission in cancer, as in the science of how our brains heal our bodies, to uh, Buddhism scholarship, um, to, to transcendental meditation, um, all the way to the physics of neuroscience. Um, we have a really big range of brain and body. Um, so I'm pretty excited to have everyone here, and thank you. And just informal survey, I'm just curious. Um, backgrounds in science, uh, interest in backgrounds in science. Cool backgrounds in religious studies or experienced meditators. Okay, right on. Uh, technologists and engineers. That's like super exciting. I think everyone might have raised their hand for everything, which is positive. I like that. Um, and then I'm curious about folks who feel, feel like they work enough um, with the people whose hands were up while their hands were down. Um, so, so that sort of, for, for me, I would like to do more of that, which is why we're here. Um, I think. John is going to start us off, and then uh, after that, um, if, actually, probably before that, could each of our demos give sort of one minute on, on, on what they're bringing to us today? Um, we have some pretty cool intersections of tech and science of the self going on. Um, some are more at beginning stages of ideation. Some happened and are awesome. Um, so if each of our demos, if Rebecca, you want to start us off for one minute and just say what, what you're showing, if that's cool. Uh, yeah, that's okay. I think it's okay. understanding one's own voice better. The fact that we never listen to our voice and maybe our voice has some potential to enable ourselves to know. You're talking about a speaking voice or can we be an intuitive voice? Which voice are you talking about? All of the voices. All of the voices. All of the voices. That's an awesome answer. Cool. So, and the demo is going to be about... Yeah. And all the, our demos will be upstairs in the chapel after we listen to talks. Um, uh, Implicit, uh, Isam? Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Isam, and the project that we're working on is called Implicit, and we're 
When we die. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Paula. Um, so our project is When We Die, Social Virtual Reality Experience. Um, and this experience, uh, this, ex this is basically a guided um, meditation around the process of contemplating your own mortality and dying, and how <clears throat> really aging, death, and mortality are not uh, topics that are very openly spoken about in Western cultures, so it's addressing that and kind of making it top of mind and making you comfortable in the uncomfort of, or the discomfort of mortality. Right on. Thanks, Paula. Uh, this is Martin, if you're around. Martin or jo John? Corey. Sorry, I'm not uh, one of the spoken. Okay. Um, <laughs> Stereoscope. That is awesome. Uh, Andreas is also a, a speaker, so we'll introduce him later. Um, uh, Martian wearables, since there's no founders here. Well, there are. Martin showed up. Right on. Uh, if you want to just say, say what you're up to. Okay. Throw it to you. Wherever you want. Take it. Yeah. Why not? Cool. So, I'm here on behalf of Martian wearables. And what we do is we make affordable biosensors. Our view is that, in some sense, there's been a trove of information locked inside of each and every one of us since we were born. Um, now, the reason that this is interesting to people who are interested in uh, meditation and mindfulness is because you know more than most that there are certain phenomena, there are certain data streams that you can only access intuitively. 
uh, data streams that are difficult to verbalize, difficult to speak about in an objective, uh, rational manner. Um, and as you probably already know, uh, much of the information that enters your brain doesn't just come from outside of you. It doesn't just come in through the five senses. It comes through enteroreceptors, uh, chemoreceptors, baroreceptors, basically nerve endings distributed throughout your body. And that information comes into your brain and tells you about your physiological state. And you experience that information, that data stream, uh, as a feeling, uh, as an intuition. And you've only up until now been able to process, digest, cogitate that information using <coughs> frameworks developed through mindfulness practices. So what we're hoping to do with Martian wearables is make that information, make that part of yourselves um, accessible to the world and to instruments and to science. That way we can start to apply quantitative uh, tools and basically all of the sophisticated uh, machinery of, of science. Uh, yes. Right on. Thanks. They came a long way to be with us, so thank you. We got some travelers. Okay, okay, we have, uh, when we die, we got Martian wearables done, we got a click it talked about, uh, Tai Chi, Tai Chi, HUC vibe. Tai Chi is just what you would think. Uh, it's, so I'm representing Tai Chi. It is an experience, a passive experience, where you watch a teacher and a master performing Tai Chi, and you follow along with their movements. And it's an opportunity to see the flow of energy and to sort of get that sense, that visualization sense of the core teaching, which is how do we think about our flow of energy. And to witness this in these master-student relationships and then try and mimic them in our own movements and, and their cues for physiological responses and so forth. So it's very cool. Um, it comes out of the MIT Arts Hackathon 2016. They were the first runners-up. So it's good stuff in the chapel upstairs. Right on. If you are not excited, I do not know what to do with you. That's all we got. All right, cool. Um, John is going to start us off quickly. Um, then I'm going to start introducing speakers. Our speaker is going to uh, speak for about an hour in total, and then we're going to go upstairs to the chapel um, and experience some demos and some practice and a whole lot of fun stuff. And um, also, we'll have some space after. If you need to shout out, if you have like a beginning of a project, I know we have a beginning of an EEG project over here. Um, I, I, is there anybody in the audience who has worked with EEG uh, in, in the past, possibly? So we got one, two, like three, four, five, six, seven. So we have some people who can answer some questions. So if, uh, we're going to shout out. I'm starting something. I'm just figuring it out. We'll do that after. We can connect, resource, project. Boom. Onward. Thank you for coming. All right, thank you, everyone, for being here. I know we want to get started with the speakers, uh, but just in the spirit of uh, consciousness hacking, I would like to invite everyone uh, who is interested to just close your eyes for a moment. We have this beautiful space, an incredible community of people, an amazing opportunity to really have a remarkable impact on the world. And so we can just take one deep breath and remember that we are here and it is now. So thank you. Open your eyes when you're ready and we'll get started. Um, we're going to start with Dr. Jeff Rediger, who wants a short introduction, um, but who is studying um, spontaneous remission in cancer. 
Um, so essentially how the brain heals the body and the science behind that, um, what some people uh, possibly in this institution might call a miracle, what some people in my institution might call a placebo, um, if those are synonymous, if they're not, and the mechanisms behind it. Um, we're really lucky to have him. He also traveled up from New York to be here and also just got a book deal, so we should all congratulate him on that, which rocks. And um, thanks for starting us off. Really appreciate it, Doctor. Nice to see all of you. I love being back in seminary, divinity school area again. I went to seminary a number of years ago before med school, and I really loved seminary, so it's nice to be back. And it's fabulous to have such different disciplines and approaches to the world coming together and having these conversations. Only fabulous things can come out of that. So it's a great event to put together. So I got interested in this a number of years ago. I had just finished residency um, in psychiatry, and I was a new young medical director and faculty member. And a nurse from Mass General, Nicola, came uh, to me and wanted to talk to me with her son about her diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Then she went to Brazil to see a spiritual healer and began telling me that I needed to look at what's going on down there. And I said, no way. <laughs> I, I said, um, well, I was, I mean, I was skeptical. I didn't really know how to think about it, and Nicola, Nicola was not uh, somebody uh, to say no or take no. So she started to have people call me from around the country and say that they had medical evidence for these remarkable recoveries. Did I want to see the medical evidence? And I said no. <laughs> but um, eventually I did become interested, and I decided to go down to Brazil and see what was going on. I decided that I would collect medical evidence for illnesses that in the West we consider incurable, and then just see if there's anything real going on. And it's become a life-changing sort of journey and exploration, and it's causing me to rethink everything that I learned, many of the things that I learned in med school and also in residency and even in seminary. And so um, it's, it's a lot to think about. And I don't really understand all of it, not even close, but I'm learning to ask better questions, I hope. And I think that's uh, been important to me personally, at least. So, Claire, for example. Claire was diagnosed by biopsy in 2008 with pancreatic adenocarcinoma. If you know anything about pancreatic cancer, especially pancreatic adenocarcinoma, it's a, it's a disease you do not want to have. It's an awful disease. The end tends to be brutish and short and painful and awful. So she um, combed through the internet and she expected to die. She couldn't find a single case of recovery. She decided that if she was going to die, she was not going to spend the last number of months that she had in gloomy doctor's offices with people who were dying. So she decided she was going to really spend time with those she loved and and really focus on the quality of her life. 2013, she had a CT of the abdomen for unrelated reasons and the cancer was gone. That's, that's an issue. Um, and then there is uh, Dr. Kane, Dr. Patricia Kane, a physician who is diagnosed also by biopsy in the mid-90s with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. This is not cancer, but it's a terrible illness and not one of those illnesses, again, that you want to have. It's 
Basically, your lungs turn to cardboard and you die. There's no treatment that's effective. She went to see a healer in Cleveland, uh, Dr. Isam Naimi, and she did a ton of psychological work. And, um, but she initially put her affairs in order because she expected to die. She went on disability. Um, and somewhere in the course of things over the next few years, um, she had a CT of the chest and it was clean for disease. So, these, in, in med school, we call these anecdotes. But after you see over a hundred of these kinds of things, and you start to see and realize that these things are buried everywhere in our culture, and we ignore them. In medicine, we're embarrassed by them. We call them flukes. Um, after a while, you start to realize, if you talk to these people, and you start to see there's patterns. There's identifiable patterns for what's going on. Webster's Dictionary defines a miracle as something that happens outside of the physical laws of nature. I, know, I don't believe that to be true anymore. I think, it's, I think these things happen outside of what we understand about the physical laws of nature. You know, if you're on the science side, you call this spontaneous remission. You think about the language and the research around placebos. If you are on the spiritual or the medical side, you call this spiritual healing or a miracle. But I believe that all of these terms are just black boxes and we've never unpacked them with the tools of science. And when you start doing so, it's a life-changing sort of thing. You start to um, hear about and see evidence for mystery, but you also for powers of the mind that we just don't look at in the West. In the West, 85% of what comes into the medical hospital is related to stress, but we don't ask people about stress. We diagnose the heart attack, we diagnose colitis, we diagnose and treat headaches and all kinds of illnesses, and we put people on external remedies like medications or provide a procedure, and then we discharge people a couple of days later, and we typically don't even ask about what's going on in your life. And as a psychiatrist, I, and I work in a medical hospital as well, when you do ask what's going on in a person's life, you get an outpouring about what's going on, and it's very relevant. So I think what it's helping me begin to think about are a lot of things. I've come to believe that we have a science of disease. When we took illness from the church, you know, several hundred years ago, that was probably a, pa a positive step in many ways. It allowed us, allowed us to establish the uh, study of disease on the rational, universal, scientific language. Allowed us to create a taxonomy of disease, helped us look at signs and symptoms of one illness and distinguish them from the signs and symptoms of another. But we created a science of disease and not a science of health. I can tell you, doctors and nurses and people that I work with in much, much of my own history, we don't know how to get ourselves healthy, much less anyone else. And so to begin creating a science of health instead of science of disease is something I've become very interested in doing. So. We have just a matter of minutes. Uh, I can not say a whole lot more probably. I think that what's fascinating is, um, in part, is that in the West, if you have a physical illness, you go to see a doctor. If you have a psychological illness, you go see a therapist or a psychologist. If you have a spiritual problem, you go see a minister or a rabbi or a sheik, etc. But I think, and that's brilliant, it helped us lay the groundwork, the foundation for really beginning to go into and looking at the details of really important issues and problems. But what we're not so good at is standing back and looking at the whole person and looking at the way in which a person integrates 
the psychological, the spiritual, and the physical into a coherent, lived whole. And in that interaction of all of this, there's something really vital and important to understand, and that when we understand it better, we can help create flourishing lives, something these people have figured out that they did on their own, and we've never talked to them about it. We just said it's a fluke. It's not a fluke. These people have all changed their lives at every level. They have done something, whether it happened in 10 minutes or 10 years, they've done something real and profound, and we would be crazy to not be studying them. I say that as a psychiatrist. So. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I think um, integration to the whole is a really beautiful way to start off. Um, I, uh, I'm, we're here. It's wonderful. Um, so our next speaker is, is going to be Baruti, who helps lead the Transcendental Meditation community here in Boston and is also a PhD student in Vedic Sciences. Um, we have a professor from Harvard Med School, a professor from Harvard Div School, an engineer from the MIT Media Lab, leaders of local religious communities all together. Those are our speakers. Our demoers come from many different institutions as well. I'm pretty excited to see what comes out of the end. Um, I know the talks are really short, as you probably felt right there. Um, we're going to have time for panel questions afterwards, but we're hoping that this is less of a um, speaking-listening event and more of a speaking-with-each-other event. This is short. There's lots of time after, and we'll all be together in the chapel upstairs. So, Baruti, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Adam, and thank you, John, for the invitation to actually be here this evening. Show of hands, who meditates in the room? Some form of meditation. Oh, that's awesome. Next level, who does mindfulness? Transcendental meditation. Ah, good. Zazen. Ah, Vipassana. Oh, this is wonderful, wonderful. My wife and I, as Adam mentioned, we serve as directors for the Transcendental Meditation Program here in the metropolitan Boston area. The foundation, Maharshi Foundation, approached us in January of 2013 about reconstituting TM in the metropolitan area. It has been taught you know, farther out, Shrewsbury, South Weymouth, Lincoln Concord, but nothing in really Cambridge proper since 1997. If you're familiar with the Longy School, we used to be located in the building at 33 Garden Center, Street Center. And so they were there, closed in 1997. There hadn't been much activity surrounding the Transcendental Meditation Technique at that time, so they closed. They approached us in January to come through. And for me, when I learned TM, April 25th, Friday, 2008, in a torrential downpour, I always remember my experience with the technique, and those of you who practice TM know what I'm talking about. It leaves an indelible impression on you, so much so that you begin to think differently about yourself and about the world in which we live. It makes me think of three quotes that come to mind. The first comes from Rumi. Coleman Barks translated this using American free verse, and he says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, languages, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. When you transcend your thinking mind to experience the quiet aspect, you not only experience that, you bring a bit of it into activity with you. So my dissertation advisor, Dr. Travis, he says, you don't merely experience being, you become being. You bring that into the world around you. Second quote comes from Joseph Fort Newton. 
he met with Rabindranath Tagore, and out of that meeting, I think it was 1916, December 20th, he wrote an article titled, At Tea with Tagore. And he says, once by the mercy of God, a truth is born into the world, it can neither be expelled nor can it be defeated. And all who see it are forever conscripts in its service. Thinking about your points, doctor. When you have the experience of transcending your thinking mind, because heretofore you thought that you are your thoughts. Everything that you've experienced, you create a connection in the brain. With repetition of that experience, those connections strengthen. That then becomes your dominant way of thinking and thus behaving in the world. So much so that you think that your thoughts are you. Yet if you take a look at, if this were a painting, and I ask the question, is the canvas still white? Many people would say no. But the painting couldn't be what it is were it not for the canvas below. I apply turpentine to the painting. Hope that I did God. I apply turpentine, the paint is removed. I turn the painting around, the canvas is still there. Similarly so with the mind, irrespective of what's happening at the top, what's happening between with the thoughts, there lies this quiet, settled aspect, waiting for discovery. That is the real journey. Who's the Trekkie in here? <laughs> you may remember this one. It's not about mapping stars and studying nebula. It is about charting the unknown possibilities of existence. That is one of the most, my favorite characters within the entire Star Trek universe is Q. Speaking about the issue of a quantum and recognizing that as humans, we have more power than we think. Notice what I said there, we have more power than we think. So personal socialization is going to dictate how they are in the world. When you choose to step beyond your socialization, to ask more questions, to begin to be challenged by the assumptions you had once before, to embrace a new reality, you become a point of reference of what's possible by simply sitting to delve within. Science is at a new frontier. We have explored the external reality ad infinitum. Yet our physicists, psychologists, Vedic scientists, we're asking us now to turn our attention inward because that's the real journey. The real journey is within. Transcendental meditation, as those of you who practice know and those who don't know, will recognize it is a mental technique that allows you to sit quietly for twice a day, 20 minutes, to allow you to settle your mind, to experience the quiet aspect of your mind. This is done via a mantra. Mantra simply is a Sanskrit word that means a sound whose effects are known. That mantra is chosen for you based on many factors. Once the mantra is chosen, you are instructed in the technique. It allows you to have a settling experience. But not only have the experience, as I said before, you become the experience. Because the reality is, irrespective of who you are, where you come from, what you do in your life, your journey to this moment began 13.8 billion years ago. Think about that for a moment. Social constructs aside, our titles and wealth aside, we're thinking beings, we're feeling beings. Coming to know at a fundamental level that you are that. Tatvamasi is a phrase in Sanskrit that says, and thou art that. You've always been that. You're one of the, it's called one of the four Mahavakyas. Basically what the Mahavakyas are, are those, the final push that the master gives the student when they begin to recognize that something different is happening in their world that they have to explore. And once they have this disorienting experience, 
the master says, in this case, Tatvamasu, allows the student to realize that you are that and you've always been that. Once you come to understand that you are that and always have been that, the question then becomes, how do you choose to live your life? Compassion develops. A sincerity for the study of oneself develops. The borders that we erect socially begin to dissolve completely. And the reason for that is because once I know what I am at my core, I know by virtue of having had this experience that you too have the possibility of having the experience. So how can I treat you as an other? How can I treat you as less than or as less or greater than? That becomes, as Rumi says, it's folly. Rumi talks about how we divide ourselves into God clubs in a divinity school. <laughs> we divide ourselves into God clubs because that's how we're socialized. Yet the moment we begin to ask more questions, we begin to operate from the intersectionality of all these things. We begin to recognize that science has its value. Spirituality has its value. Society has its value. Each one has its value, yet each of them, they're attacking a social phenomenon from a different level. Spirituality seeks to go deeper within. Religion seeks to go just above, but in some cases pointing to. Social constructs often address it only from the surface. But the question becomes, do you explore, in terms of consciousness, only from the surface? Absolutely not. You see that everything is a function of what we think. Everything that we as humans have ever devised began as an idea. Once you recognize that, the question then becomes, what and to what degree do you choose to participate in anything? I'll leave you with one final quote. It comes from another Masonic scholar, Albert Pike. He says, what we do for ourselves alone dies with us. Yet what we do for others in the world outlives us and is immortal. Do you choose to be immortal? Or do you choose to be immortal? Thank you. I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, so we have something of a, a practice sandwich, if you will, um, where we're heading from uh, med school into transcendental meditation. Um, and now uh, we're going to have uh, Chris Berlin, who is a teacher here um, at Div School, but uh, focuses on clinical settings specifically. Um, so teaching uh, mindfulness practices, but especially in end-of-life care in cancer institutes. Um, so religion entering into medical settings. Um, and he's going to lead us in a bit of a practice. And thank you so much for being here, Professor. Thank you. So you're welcome to participate in a short, um, probably five-minute exercise of uh, mindfulness practice. If you're not comfortable practicing, that's fine. Just you can sit and focus on your breathing and try not to react to thoughts and notice the stability in your spine. And um, as things arise, just extend kindness to them. And as that happens, notice your mind is like an open sky rather than the clouds that fill it. Um, piece of cake. So let's get comfortable, feet flat on the floor. 
a nice natural posture. So your breathing is easy, can move through the body easily. So notice what you sense in the present. It can be helpful to just rest our attention into what we're feeling through the senses of the body about this moment. Maybe noticing the quality of your breathing just as it is. And become aware of the muscles in your body. That space between your feet and the floor, that touch, that gentle touch. Feeling your sit bones being held by the chair. And just begin by deepening slightly your inhale and breathing out all the way. In through the nose, perhaps down into the belly, around the back. release. Just let your mind dissolve down into the body like pouring salt into water. Just fully embodying mindful presence in the body. Notice what qualities the breath offers you. As you breathe easily, but fully, do you feel a sense of kindness on the inhale? Do you feel a sense of release on the exhale? gentle openness on the inhale. And letting go on the exhale. And allow your mind just to be as it is. Whatever is there, just noting hosting what arises, what disperses, 
Notice the impermanent nature of all your thoughts, feelings, distractions. They just come and they go. And all that arises, we can exchange kindness. The aspiration of the mind to be settled in a natural way, effortlessly. Just be present without trying or striving. restfully alert. There you are. So I, I know I don't have a whole lot of time left to speak. Um, and I'm not going to, because I teach here at HDS, I'm not going to talk about divine hacking, okay? I promise. Um, as a teacher of um, counseling and chaplaincy and Buddhism, um, I think what I'll do is just talk briefly about something we call shamatha practice in Buddhism, which is uh, a way of allowing the mind to settle. So it's more of a technique, allowing the mind to settle in such a way that um, what arises is a sense of, uh, of being present in an expanded way, in a spacious way. Um, so for those of you who are meditators, this might be old hat for you, but um, it's not about how advanced you are, it's about how deep you can take the basics, right? So we're talking about metacognition, ultimately, when we talk about awareness. We're talking about self-awareness. But what kind of self are we aware of? That's the question. So this term, metacognition, uh, sometimes is translated as thinking about thinking or knowing about knowing. But Buddhists generally, um, how we generally talk about metacognition, however, is is that that locus of awareness that is aware of itself. 
Awareness of awareness. Awareness of thoughts, awareness of experiences. But in a way where the reacting to what's there, the grasping, the clinging, the habitual tendencies to follow that train of thought becomes attenuated to the point where we're able to be aware without having to change or reshape the experience in any way. So with shamatha practice, shamatha is a Sanskrit term for, um, uh, for peaceful abiding, for calm abiding. But it's not just about relaxation. It's important, and the, one of the key components to shamatha is relaxation. And so we do that just as we did by focusing on breathing, allowing the breath to soften the body, any contracted muscles begin to unwind and untangle whatever is knotted up. And we take our time just getting to know mindful breathing. As, as we relax, we also uh, seek to cultivate a state of one-pointedness. So as we focus on our breathing, that breath becomes the object of our attention. The idea here is, is that as we are focusing the mind on an object of attention, that we naturally settle. That concentration allows for a natural settling. But it's not the kind of concentration where you're working really hard and you're, you're sort of your uh, blood vessels in the brain are contracting. Rather, the calm, the relaxation serves to balance out that sense of easeful, effortless concentration. And so you're balancing with shamatha, you're balancing calm, peaceful uh, state of mind, but also with a sustained attention on an object of some kind. So it could be breath, it could be the spine in your body, could be your entire body as a whole, could be the earth elements. The Buddha taught us to be mindful of earth and inside the body as well as the earth that we're a part of, water, fire, air, all of these elements that we can get to know a little bit better. So this is in the, the sort of ancient cosmology. Um, so we're breathing into a state of deep relaxation. We're working with the body to unwind the tension. And we're focusing, we're just allowing the mind to rest on an object of our attention. And when it wanders, what do we do? Do we get mad at it? No. We just adjust, as one of my teachers used to say, adjust the sails on your sailboat and just keep going. Just notice the wandering and notice the reacting and notice the aversion to maybe the fact that your heart is beating a little bit faster as you settle, as you calm down, or that you're getting an itch in that leg right in that spot you can't reach. Eventually those things lift. Um, there are plenty of hindrances to work with when we practice. So we're talking about relaxation, calm abiding. We're talking about single-pointed awareness in an easeful way. And then recognizing that as we are concentrating in that easeful way, that awareness itself is more easily arises on its own. We can become more present to whatever mental stuff is happening, whatever the mental phenomena is that's jumping around in the mind. So the goal isn't to get rid of it. We're not trying to change anything in the sense of clearing the mind, or rather we're allowing the mind. And that's, that's a key part of our practice. Ultimately, that is 
that awareness of awareness is the metacognition that um, Buddhism seeks to help us uncover. And often talks about it in terms of resting the mind in its natural state. Has anybody heard this term? Yeah. The assumption is that this is the natural state of mind. That a lot of the distractions and the, the clutter and all of the rumination, the just incessant mumbling and rumination in the mind, the commentaries, the judging, everything that is part of every single moment, including our dream life, perhaps, that we can actually tap into, we can hack ourselves, basically, down into this place that is fully present to us, fully aware, non-striving, open, spacious, and clear. So that's the idea, anyway. At that point, this metacognition is not, is not is no-pointed awareness, okay? So we've gone from uh, single-pointed awareness as a support for attention, calm abiding, awareness of awareness to the point where the awareness itself isn't focused on any one thing. We're just abiding in an open state of awareness. That is the source of great flourishing, of well-being, and deep, sort of peaceful abiding. And so in that sense, that might be the spiritual component that I was asked to talk about. Um, I think I'll wrap it up in a second, but um, I want to talk about aspiration and motivation, which are really key in Buddhism. That, that okay, so I've cultivated this place of now resting the mind in its natural state, fine. Maybe it's taken me 10 years to get there. But finally I drop in, I have that experience. But it doesn't end with that. Because there's something implicit in that experience that is so important to all of us. And that is what we practiced a few moments ago by learning how to be kind, how to be gentle and generous with ourselves first. And this isn't a narcissistic kind of self-involved process. What that does is it helps us when we can receive ourselves just as we are and exchange kindness for the sufferings that we carry, whatever they might be, actually extending compassion to ourselves, we can then offer that to others in a much more authentic and genuine way. Right? It's not laden with all of our grasping and agendas and attachments. So if we hold that as an intention in our practice, to relinquish judgment and criticism and likes and dislikes and having, needing things to be this way and not needing them to be that, not wanting them to be that way. The intention is to benefit ourselves, of course, but imagine the potential when we not only wish to benefit ourselves, but everyone around us who is also suffering. And so that's the component of Buddhism that says this is liberating as well. This quality of what we call bodhicitta, or the mind of awakening that arises naturally through compassion, through abiding in an open, spacious awareness that also has this quality of deep kindness and generosity. Bright, clear mind. So this is the spirit with which I uh, did chaplaincy work at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute for five years. I worked with um, people at the end of life, integrating meditation into um, the process of dying, as well as trainings with um, clinicians and social workers. And, um, 
that spirit of kindness and of compassion. I've always compared it to um, lighting a candle with another candle. That when you light, when you take one candle that's lit and you light another candle with it, that original candle doesn't lose anything at all. We have nothing to lose by being compassionate. Nothing. In fact, the room gets brighter. We see more clearly. It's not depleting, but it's energizing. So that's my, my message. I guess I'll end there. My time is up, but uh, I thank you for listening and for being willing to practice together. Thanks. Okay, so we're on to our last speaker, um, but our speakers will hopefully come up and take some questions afterwards, though I think the magic is mostly happening upstairs when we get to talk one-on-one -on -one with each other. Um, so Dr. Andreas Mershon is, um, has some interesting titles. Uh, no Labels Research Scientist or James Bond of MIT, I've heard both. Um, but he's at the MIT Media Lab, and he is a physicist who um, dove into the science of the brain, um, and we're going to hear about what that turned up. Thank you so much for being here. So, um, I'm going to try something I've never really done before and not use any of my slides. This is a little scary for me, so. Alright. <laughs> so, hmm. I do lead a group called Label Free Research, meaning that we do specialize but we specialize in not specializing. Once we get good at something and we understand it and we can show that we can build around it, uh, it no longer is research for us. Einstein told us that uh, if you know what you're doing, that's not research. <laughs> so we create industry after that. We have startups, etc. So my scientific sort of trajectory has um, been kind of wide-reaching, starting from theoretical physics, uh, quantum physics, biophysics, and um, later neurobiology, including associative conditioning of uh, Drosophila flies to study memory and um, uh, recall and Alzheimer's disease and things like this. In all of this, what the overarching idea was that I always followed the curiosity and I asked questions and then when the questions ended up pointing to another field that I had no idea uh, about, I would just go and run into it and I had uh, this wonderful experience of beginner's mind. So when I first went from my hardcore physics into a biology lab, I was laughing at them, like, what are you people doing? There's all these beakers here and all these flies. How can you possibly do science with these things? They're all dirty. Where's your math? Where's your, where's your look and amplifier? Where's your lasers? Um, that was the happiest uh, moments, right? When you're just entering a field and you're like, what is all this stuff? And why are they doing it this way? And as I you know, became more established in this field, the curiosity subsided. Now I had to conform to the, you know, uh, to the jargon and all this, and it kind of started losing its appeal and up to the next scene. 
So field hopping like this ended up with uh, some interesting uh, things, but the thing that I want to really point to is what, when I was the happiest, I was curious. And it was sort of blue sky curiosity that I was like, wow, why, why are they doing it this way? What happens if I do it that way? Have they thought about this? That was fun. When I was no longer curiosity driven, but I was sort of career driven, oh, let's not write this all up for nature, let's make sure that it you know, ends up on the cover and all that, I ended up not being so happy. And this ended up being a big chunk of my scientific career, being not really upfront with my curiosity until I happened upon um, the chairman of the Nobel Chemistry Selection Committee, who came up to me after a speech I gave and was like, um, I want to solve this problem that we have in Sweden, which is that one of our most um, uh, popular politicians run, ran on the platform of making Sweden a chemical-free country. Remove all the chemicals, you know, water, <laughs> oxygen. <laughs> and uh, he says, we need to do something about this. We need to bring young people and the public back into the fold of you know, being, being able to think clearly. And I said, well, look, you're the no Nobel chairman. Why don't we make a Nobel for kids? But what should it be? What, what it should it be for? I mean, we don't want, we want it to be democratic. So we thought with, uh, for a long time, and Shu Guangzhang, who was also a very fantastic scientist at MIT, um, came up with this idea of why don't we make it a Nobel for questions? And indeed, it ended up being so um, deeply uh, enriching. First of all, notice that this was the first ever time in the history of the world that we rewarded inquisitiveness and curiosity. Up until now, it was always about answers. How come we've never been, you know, we always pay lip service to curiosity, but we've never thought of it as a honable skill before. Curiosity gets beaten out of us in school, especially here with the multiple choice. I mean, how, when was it in life that you had a question and there was four options and only one was correct? That is not living your life. That's maybe shopping, right? There's like four <laughs> options, yeah, pick the right. That, that never happens, right? So, um, so we did this thing, and then something interesting started happening. I uh, set it up such that uh, kids from all over the world had only to just email us a question um, and um, tell us why they like it, et cetera, et cetera. And then I had 13 Nobel laureates, including many other eminent scientists, judge these questions and sort of fight with each other about who gets to get these prizes, of which we get five for girls and five for boys each year. What happened to me as a, as a director of this thing was that every day I would receive questions from children. And let me tell you, having thousands and thousands of questions from children over the years from all over the world did something to me and it reignited my curiosity. One of the um, coolest things to come out of it was that I realized that this is an untapped resource. So we can talk about all the various experiments we did with the kids and many people are now using children to sort of think about things and clearly the, the, the clarity that children come up with is incredible. A big established scientist would never ask these things. Now you know what, I'm going to um, just jump ahead and tell you what 
one of my favorite uh, ever questions was. It was, um, what is the speed of dark? Dark, dark. <laughs> so, for this one, maybe instead of me drawing on a board, maybe I could point to something, but, so how did that go? So, that didn't actually win, but we were looking, you know, I was there with all the laureates, and this kid is asking, what is the speed of dark? And we're all laughing, right? Well, we all know that the speed limit for the universe is the speed of light, right? That's the, if, even if you're not a scientist at all, that's the one thing that everybody knows to be correct. Is that true? Does nothing go faster than light? So all sorts of science fiction, right? All sorts of entanglement, the einstein podolsky rosen paradoxes, all this quantum stuff. It's very difficult, you know, you think it's very elaborate. But if you really think about what that child was asking, we started playing with how to answer. We said, well, no thing, nothing goes faster than light. No thing goes faster than light. The absence of a thing goes faster than light. And let's think about this for a second. Shadows can go faster than light. Modulations, phase velocities, but, but very, very simple. Let's put it this way. I have a, a flashlight, okay, let's say, it opens up like this, and I travel, and I let it go for one light year. I have it on the whole time from the Earth, right? So it goes out there, and there's a planet here, and there's a planet there. And let's say they're also one light year apart, just make an equilateral triangle, just for the fun of it. These two planets see my flashlight at the same time. Now suppose I put my finger across my flashlight like this. Imagine, just, just imagine, thought experiment. The shadow travels from planet A to planet B. And how long? How long does it take the shadow to, do, to go from here to here? However long it took me to do this? One second? So did that shadow just cover a distance of one light year in one second? Sure did. Now, is that useful? Well, what can you do with it? Well, many things. Imagine if the shadow, if, if that line had dominoes that were light sensitive, and when there was no light, they would fall. Suddenly, you would see a correlated, coherent action at a distance that looks like suddenly something starts there, goes there faster than light. How the hell did, did, did this guy manage to communicate with that? This ends up being so deep and so profound and lead, let, let out all the biology that it explains and, and all the other things. Ask yourselves this. How come we've never taught that? And you've never been taught that in school. How come it took me, who I've been thinking about this since I was, I don't know, 12 or so, it never even occurred to me to, to ask that question. What else out there is like that? So um, I, um, I'm going to finish by, by giving you something uh, practical. The, before I go to the practical one, let me tell you what I think about uh, the, what this prize has done for me and what I think it sh we should all be thinking about. Making curiosity a honable skill. We all get born with it. Animals are curious, machines are curious, molecules are curious. Curiosity, we all start with it, it's very democratic. If we sustain it, if we ask better questions, thank you sir, that was excellent, better questions, we start becoming a much more powerful community and a much more powerful individual. 
ask yourselves, why is it that we can call Donald Trump names all day long, we can make fun of him, we can caricature him, but we can't ask him any questions? Questions are more powerful than answers. The same goes everywhere. So enabling the population to be better at asking questions is, I think, my way at least, the best way I know to democratize, to, to rise up from, from this fear and a loathing that has um, gripped us. Now, uh, practically speaking, here's a question that I ask. You may have heard of neurofeedback. This is the idea that if I show you what's happening inside of your body, be it, let's say, a heart rate or even your, your body temperature, and if I show it to you and I tell you, look, if you want to lower your heart rate, every time you're, you, know, you go from, let's say, 100 to 90, you feel good, automatically your brain does something to actually start lowering your heart rate. You're gaining semi-conscious control over these autonomic functions. Now, we've known this for many years, since the 80s at least, with Tibetan monks that have been shown and studied very well by uh, Herbert Benson uh, to be able to uh, use what's called G-Tum-Mo yoga. I think somebody here is probably better at this, where they use breath, but they also use a visualization of a flame uh, on their back to increase their fingers, uh, the, 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 the temperature of their fingers by eight degrees Celsius. That is huge. Uh, that is a fever. That would be actually hot if you touch them. And they can actually change their metabolism too. So the question is, can we do something um, to speed up the process by which you start getting conscious control over your metabolic and other processes? Can we think ourselves to health? And what, wh where would technology come into this? Well, here's an example from my life. I have many different learning disabilities from dyslexia to ADD to all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, but I'm also a pilot. And when I get my cockpit and I fly my little plane, which I only do for pleasure, it's not for transportation, it's not for work, it's a pleasurable sort of meditative experience, my ADD goes away. There is no way I'm going to be distracted. I perform very well. It's, uh, it's not exactly a state of flow where everything happens effortlessly. It's more of an anti-ADD kind of experience. And when I come down from it, having processed enormous amounts of information, uh, radio, uh, navigation, uh, kinesthetic stuff, olfactory stuff, when I come down, I feel great. It's like the best sort of massage for my brain. So I thought, hmm, hold on a minute. What if I record my brain during um, what, when I'm flying my plane, and then I, w with a commercial uh, EEG headband that uh, we have, and then I, I try to use neurofeedback to reproduce that state in my office. Will that not be a cure for my ADD so I can stay on one thought? So... I started trying this, and uh, in the plane, you can't really do this very easily because you have headphones, your head has to move around, the technology's not quite there. So, well, what's the next best thing? When do I ever get into this kind of thing again? Not as good, but driving my motorcycle real fast also causes this kind of thing. Now, you're seeing a pattern here. It's adrenaline, the stakes are high, and it's kinesthetic. Your whole body sort of moves, right? Um, so I was ready to start you know, breaking helmets and renting a racetrack so I don't you know, do it on the streets and putting the... And I thought, hold on a minute, let's, let's back up a bit. If my idea is even half right, I should be able to detect a perceptual state of, of, of a brain or a mind and uh, be able to tell whether the person is in that state or not. So, and to do this, you know, it's hard to, to, to say, oh, I'm in a state of flow or I'm, 
I'm uh, focused or whatever. What is the easiest thing that I can unambiguously cause and have an external um, identifier? Pain. If I ask people to put their hand into uh, ice water, I know that before they put the hand in the ice water, they have no pain. Afterwards, I tell them, you know, don't be a hero. Just keep it there until you've had enough. Take it out. If I look at the uh, EEG traces right before they put their hand in and right before they take it out, I have two points, no pain and pain. If I can train my machine to be able to recognize these, I should be able to train it to recognize other things. So we did this with um, several other scientists, including my wife, who is a pain researcher at uh, MGH somewhere here, maybe not. There she is. <laughs> um, and this is another, the lesson here is this. We used pain as an excuse for me to, to basically end up uh, recording my, my brainwaves in the plane eventually. We published this as a characterizing the performance of what we call self-calibrating protocols uh, for wearables. We showed that it works really well for pain. And it took us like a year and a half with, with us both being <coughs> interested in pain and consciousness to realize we actually accidentally invented the world's first pain detector. Isn't that crazy how in 2017 I can tell your transcriptome, I can tell your um, volatilome, all these other ohms and omics and biomarkers, but I can't tell if you're in pain or not. How is that, how is that good? Given the, what we're doing now with pain, how massively important is the opioid crisis and the addiction that comes from it and the fact that chronic pain is, is a huge um, drag on quality of life and an economy, et cetera, it is incredible that we don't have, we didn't have, any kind of device that will tell you whether you're in pain or not. So that was the, the lesson there, that even us didn't know what we were doing until much later. Uh, and what else is like that? There's plenty of stuff out there that we don't look at, uh, you know, even if you're, if you're in there. And if, you, if you're trying to, to use this curiosity that, that I keep um, advocating, there is a lot of things out there that we have and they're ready and we, we have, we, we're not really understanding what, they, what we do. So, Having said all that, please come and look at my uh, temporal stereoscope, and I'm uh, looking forward to your questions. Thank you. Right on. Um, so we can just thank our speakers, and I think they'll come on up for maybe 10 minutes of questions. And we say thank you. Yay. Yay. Hi, my name is Walter Ness, and I'm a clairvoyant who sees chi energy. And I noticed that if I have a whole room of people who have the same ability as mine, the dialogue changes. Then a person comes in who actually doesn't know anything about chi energy, and everybody dumbs it down. At the end, you're talking in a way that doesn't resemble anything you know, because now you're trying to please the mentality of the individual in the, uh, in the room. So I just wanted to mention that. Thank you. Hello, this is Dr. Rediger. Um, I'm wondering who was it that you visited in Brazil and what set him or her apart from a snake oil salesman? Uh, 
<laughs> well, I've talked to a lot of healers and several different healers in Brazil, and they're, every healer I've ever talked to is a character. So uh, it, they're fascinating personalities and they're complicated personalities. Uh, so I saw several in Brazil. The, the prominent one I saw was a, a healer called John of God. Um, yeah, so there's, there's, so there's a lot, it's a different culture, so there's a different way of thinking about health and illness. And uh, they think about death very differently, they think about the soul and the body very differently. So uh, he's, he's one of many. Okay. Um, regarding the stories about these uh, people healing from these seemingly terminable illnesses, for these medical tests that they underwent that where they were first diagnosed, what was the what was the about the rate of the false positives for those t for those tests, like in general? Because you said that these events are rare and that rare enough to sometimes be swept under the rug. But I mean, if they were rare enough to be swept under the rug, that would probably also you know give some people confidence that they worked, and that's. That's where all the false positive stuff would come from. So you're asking how common is this, or? As in, is there anything, was there anything out of the ordinary about um, these people's situation that would suggest that this was not just a misdiagnosis, just a failure of the medical test? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, um, you know, when you, you look back through the history of these things, uh, there's been an assumption that there's a misdiagnosis. And I, you know, in the early years of doing this, uh, since 2003, you know, I've seen so many things. I've seen people who were convinced they were better when they weren't. I've seen illnesses uh, go away and then a person goes back into a toxic relationship and they get ill again. I've seen a lot of things and it's caused me to revise a lot of my thinking. I think, and let me know if I'm getting at your question here. Um, the cases that I look at, I sometimes have to talk to other specialists because I want to make sure that we really understand the pathophysiology of each particular disease, and there's a, there's a lot of diseases out there. And so um, I uh, have made sure that the illnesses that I really work, look closely at have real medical evidence that the case is what it, we think it is. And so for, I, I mentioned Claire, she had pancreatic adenocarcinoma diagnosed by biopsy. Uh, Dr. Kane is a physician who was diagnosed by biopsy with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Both of these people, um, the microscope doesn't lie. We made sure, I mean, we don't believe that these were, um, I mean, in, in Claire's case, they actually convened a committee to figure out what happened here because um, to have a CT of the abdomen that was clean in 2013, they thought there's probably been a, a mistake and they decided there hadn't been no mistake that actually the cancer was just no longer present. Uh, I work in a microscopy lab and while the microscope might not lie, the, an incompetent intern who yeah. messes up the standing, right. yeah, that, they definitely can lie. Yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> um, I'm Gia from Argentina. I am visiting just for one week, but I am impressed. We are making uh, VR therapies in Buenos Aires with very little resources, but with a lot of questions. And when you were saying about measuring the pain, no pain parameters, I would like to know 
if those parameters are like general, how are you measuring them? Yes. And if each, if you like have to program them for each patient. Excellent, thank you, because I didn't have time to go into this. And this is, this is what's different about what we do. What we realized is that if you relax the requirement of a neural correlate, and if you just ask the person to self-calibrate, meaning that they push a button when they're in pain, and tell you, I am now experiencing pain. They could be lying about this. They could be experiencing hunger or nothing. It doesn't matter. If you allow this, the richness of signal that you get from a EEG device that is $300. I'm working You're working with Muse. Okay, good. The, the richness of signal that you can get out of this, which due to the onboard digital signal processing that we have now, is entirely sufficient. In fact, superior to the clinical EEG with the 30 electrodes and all this stuff. The richness of signal that you get there is enough to allow you to create uh, characterization handles that you apply to uh, each person and you calibrate to each person. And what we found is the following, and this is kind of, I, I, uh, this is, I need my slides, but I'll try and explain. The main result is that if you calibrate to the same person and then use it on the same person, you only need seven different characterizers. And with the worst off-the-shelf machine learning um, um, classifier, the worst, uh, it will take you 0.4 seconds to have 99% validation accuracy. If you calibrate to average, which is what everybody else is doing in all of these things, they're like, okay, we have a very good idea of what the, let's say the relaxed brain, the, the relaxed average brain looks like, or the brain that is no pain. If you calibrate to average, at the more data you get, all that happens is your variance uh, for each uh, set of um, handles uh, decreases, but exponentially you get maximally at 67% validation accuracy. And there's no way you're gonna get around that. So, all of those things that have been, and this is actually, I think, uh, true of all medicine and, and all biology, including all the genomics and genetics, et cetera. The self-calibration is very quick and very real, and it does, and we have to pay attention to what the person is perceiving and experiencing. And if they, even if they call it a different word, the machine is agnostic, it doesn't care. It just figures out a way to separate these two things, and it doesn't stop there. You can separate it in many different parameters. One of the first um, applications of this was to uh, track, believe it or not, hedge fund managers and, and high volume traders mm -hmm. who, you know, they're very superstitious, and uh, they won't give us, you know, their, their, uh, what they're doing, but we can tell that they're self-calibrating by saying, okay, I made a mistake here, I made a mistake here, it cost me $100,000 or whatever. And after a little bit of time, the machine learns to just alert them and tell them, look, last time your brain looked like this, 10 minutes later you started making mistakes. Go take a break. That's already there. So um, for, uh, for pain, it's a, it's a straightforward thing. And um, eventually you, you want to be able to Put in as the two or three or four maybe different states, any state you define. Let's say I am in a state conducive to go, I don't know, talk to AT&T because that's a frustrating thing. I need to be nice and calm. This is the right state to go. Now I'm in a state that I am conducive to learning something, etc. So to, to your question, 
I can show you all the details, uh, and I can I can give you the the, the the protocols, but they're very very simple. They just depend on you believing what the person is saying, and then calling that perceptual state. We don't even call it the brain state anymore. It's a perceptual state. Last thing I'll say is it is not limited to EEG. You can if, if you find other signals that are rich enough, and there's enough variability there so that you can tell things apart, you're okay. So it's not just this. You could do it with anything else. EEG is good because it's quick. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to attend a workshop with Wim Hof, also known as uh, the Iceman. Uh, and that was the first time that my eyes really opened to the, to the possibility of using meditation to affect physiology. He's fantastic at, at affecting his metabolism, but the, the part that really impressed me uh, was learning of the recent experiments where they've uh, injected him with, I apologize, I don't remember if it's um, uh, dead bacteria or dead viruses. Um, in a medical setting where his uh, immune response was monitored by doctors. And uh, through his style of meditation, he was able to substantially uh, suppress his immune response um, yes. to the injection. And so I'm curious if we have any understanding of the mechanisms by which that occurs. By which he does that? Yes. So, Dr. Simi Foster is a neuroimmunologist, and she, she, that's what she does. Uh, would you like to say something? In the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is sort of controls your parasympathetic nervous system, and we know it directly talks to your immune cells. And so by doing things like Valsalva maneuver or um, spending time on slow, deep breathing, you actually are stimulating your vagus nerve, and that is releasing um, neuropeptides and neurotransmitters that then directly act on your immune cells and change the way they respond to insults like dead bacteria or viruses or live bacteria or viruses. There's actually a great study that came out recently in PNAS where um, patients who have rheumatoid arthritis were implanted with a vagal nerve stimulator and it worked amazingly to ameliorate their disease better than a lot of the pharmacological medications that we have now. And just one, one, one thing to add from a personal experience. When I was um, a teen, I um, had the, the following thing and it stayed with me. My cousin, uh, it, who at the time was maybe in her 30s, was uh, very allergic to dogs. And I was, she was in the uh, kitchen and I was talking to her husband in the living room and we started talking about dogs. Mm. And she comes out of the kitchen all red and all puffy like, oh, did you bring a dog here? You know, I I, you know I'm allergic to dogs. I'm like, there's no dog here. We're just talking about the dog. Mm. Wow, that stayed with me. The word dog and the allergen from the dog has the same effect. This is deep and, and it goes uh, across, across the board. Um, it, we, we, in my lab we also built the world's first um, uh, bioelectronic nose that works on actual olfactory receptors and it tells you what something smells of as opposed to what something's uh, made of. And what we found in, in doing this is that uh, in fact the odorants or the, uh, the stimuli that you think are causing the olfactory response are neither necessary nor sufficient to cause uh, the perception of scent. We can alter 
your perception of scent in a myriad ways. A very easy thing to, to do for you is how if you like wine, give you a cup of wine, concentrate, you, you smell it, you drink it, and then I ask you, would you like it drier uh, or sweeter? And I'll do something, maybe flash the light, maybe a little tone, and I say, you say, let's say I want it uh, sweeter. Okay, beep, now try it. And it is legitimately sweeter, and you will swear that it's sweeter. Why? Because I pointed your attention to the sweet part. And again, how I ask the question will, will cause your perception to be different. What you expect guides your perception, your perception guides your reality, and to expand your consciousness to be able to handle these things is part of what we do. I actually have a question to follow up on that question for you all. Um, and that is, um, does the visual brain in the back interpret experience as a real lived experience when it bypasses the, dis the discursive mind that seeks to edit and interpret what reality is. Is that one reason too why, uh, say we do a visualization practice, why that may have so much power from a mind-body standpoint to affect changes somehow, um, whether it's through the hypothalamus or... Um, I want to ask this, you know, I don't know how to answer exactly, but I want to ask you this. Um, the people who do the uh, visualization for body temperature control, they visualize a flame at the back of mm -hmm. their spine. Right. What if they're blind and they've never seen a flame? Mm -hmm. What do they visualize? And um, more to, to the point, there's, there's the visual perception, you think, oh, there's a, you know, an objective reality out there. It is never that. Mm -hmm. Let's say I have a tomato here and you look at it, and you say, it's a red tomato. If I've never experienced a tomato before, I may know that it's red, but I don't know what it is. Uh, if I have experienced a tomato before, but you think it's a neutral thing, but I've been pelted with tomatoes all my life, I will have a completely different perception of this thing than you have. My preconditioning, my all the stuff, affects visual perception and affects the way that I look at it and what I think about it very, very strongly. There's no objective reality. Yeah, so it has to resonate with us for it to work. Some things that you don't even, um, if you don't have the word for something, by the way, you, you tend to not even be able to, to yeah. see it. Uh, the ancient Greeks didn't have a word uh, for the color blue, which is interesting. Why? Why not? You know, because where is blue? Blue is the sky and the sea, and those are big things that have their own word. That's the ocean. Nobody asks what the color of it is because that's the ocean. And that's the sky. Nobody asks what the color is because that's not the property of, of sky. And the only other things, if you think about it, that have ever been, um, that, that were before we did dyes in nature that are blue are very rare. And they're called bluebird, blueberry. So it, it's, it's actually stuck to the, to the uh, identifier. Which raises an interesting question though, because if you can understand that a person's actions are based on what they're thinking, we all know you can't remove darkness from a room. You can introduce a second element, in this case light, darkness will flee. Similarly so with knowledge. If a person doesn't have the word to describe something, you introduce them to the word, their thinking and subsequent actions are different. Think about that from a social construct perspective. Think about when you start looking at, let's just talk about the issue of race. Mm -hmm. Think about it in terms of issues of gender. Other social constructs, the moment you introduce a person to the idea that these are just that constructs, that you can think differently, because heretofore you've only gone off one set of information. Everything you've ever thought and done has been based on that set of information. Introduce 
a second element, a new way of thinking about it. A tomato, for instance. Introduce that, a person's thought processes begin to shift. Now, do that on a wider scale and think about what's possible. I love when you were talking about questions. I love Voltaire says, judge a man or woman by their questions and not their answers. So always, always ask questions. Thank you. Voltaire actually only said, judge a man. I, we, we I, say, a, I we, say the woman very because good. I'm very you know, gender neutral here and I'm going to respect the women. <laughs> this is one of my I flags. come from a woman, so. Thank you. Thank you. This is, we're, yes. we're totally coherent here. Yes. I have a slide that says exactly that. I have Voltaire's picture and it says judge a man and anybody. Yes. So that's the, um, let, let, let me just give you a, a, a little riff on that. Sometimes with children, for instance, you can, you can get a lot of mileage. I was changing my son, uh, who is uh, about, was about eight months old at the time, and my daughter was in the room. And she's like, what's that smell? <laughs> she was about two and a half. And instead of telling her, that, oh, this is the smell, blah, 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 I said, um, what does the smell like? tell you? There you, there you go. What does it tell you? I said, I don't want to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> That is deep. Question here. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, this goes to everybody, but um, Susu, Mr. Susu Vong, Professor Susu Vong, primarily I really loved that quote. Thank you, everybody, for coming and, and speaking to us. Um, but just as a student and somebody that's young and has a long future ahead of me and really wants to feel like I'm taking full advantage of all of the opportunities that I have and that ends up being that I pack my schedule from dawn to dusk pretty much with events and I think I'm not really all that mindful and don't really take much time to be at peace or take these moments of silence. And so I wonder, in, in a busy life where you want to make sure that you're being with people and doing things and growing at every second, how do you also um, find that time or maybe find that mental space for some sort of meditation and, and how do you balance that, like the worldly needs of having a resume that gets you a job eventually, and then also being a, a human that thinks and lies in that field that you were talking about. Shift of perspective. Most often people don't think about it. Practicing transcendental meditation, you sit quietly twice a day for 20 minutes. That's 40 minutes out of your day. You might as well say 45 minutes. How many hours are there in a day? You have 23 hours and 15 minutes remaining for the day. I say to people, shift your perspective of, in terms of meditation, less of it being about time management and more about energy management. We've all been in social situations where the energy is very charged. My mom would often say you can walk into a space and the, the energy is so thick in the room, the tension is so thick you can cut it with a knife. Why not be the center of calm? Why not shift your perspective from it being about time management to say that I don't have enough time to meditate, yet to take care of yourself, i.e. self-care, sitting quietly morning and afternoon to practice this technique walk into social situations, bring a bit, a bit of the calm with you that you experience when you practice the technique. It's a gift to not only give yourself, but the people with whom you come into contact when you walk into socially charged situations. So take time for yourself. If you have any questions, I'm happy to talk with you afterward. I would say uh, uh, elevators, waiting rooms, and red lights. Maker event. We've had these first sort of activate our community. Um, we're going to get some 
hardware together and some software together and some mentors and, and, and start getting our hands dirty um, with some of these ideas and making things. So if anybody wants to talk about that. Um, but yeah, let's get upstairs, check out demos, thank our speakers, thank our families. Thank you. Thank you.